Hi, my name is Leslie, and I'm the better half of the Backroads. I'd like to take a moment to make a few announcements. First, we'd like to thank you for all your patience with us through our growing pains. We wanted to get this content out to you sooner, but we've been incredibly busy. Second, I would like to take time to announce our new addition to the show. It's me! That's right, we're coming out with a new channel that will host all of our video content going forward with our new episodes. We're taking you along for the ride and bringing you up close and personal with the legends and the towns from our stories. Join us for a first-hand experience of each episode. Next episode, we're taking a trip out to New Mexico to explore another branch of the Camino Real known as the Dead Man's Trail. We're going to travel the trail however we can, whether it be by foot, car, or canoe to reach the ghost towns and the abandoned Pueblo villages that lay alongside this all-but-forgotten trail. The road itself is well over 300 years old and is currently nothing more than a barely visible dirt road through the desert. The Pueblo villages are said to be well over a thousand years old. So, we hope you'll join us on our new channel, The Better Half of Backroads. Details coming soon as to where to find us. Last but not least, we'd like to give credit where credit is due. So I'd like to take the time to personally thank everyone who has shown their support for the show. I'd like to thank our first two Patreon patrons, Roberta S. and Glenn C. Thank you both for your love and support. I'd also like to thank the new members of our group on Facebook, Cheyenne D., Josh G., Olivia K., Keith F., Laura M., and Chris K. Your support means the world to us. Lastly, my husband and I would like to give a huge shout out to two special ladies up in New England. These two ladies, Laura and Sarah, have an awesome podcast called Ivy League Murders. You can find them on iTunes. Just search podcast for Ivy League Murders. They're a true crime podcast that focus on some of the darkest secrets that many of the Ivy League schools hope that you would never find out. But they can probably describe their show better than I can. So I'm going to let you listen to the trailer for their show before we get into ours. Also, if you need help finding their show, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, and we'd be glad to point you in their direction. This show has shown us nothing but love from the beginning, so anything we can do to help them out is greatly appreciated. That being said, I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Ivy League Murders. Ah, the Ivy League. They are the eight most prestigious colleges in the nation. And as we've seen recently, people will do or pay anything to get their kids into them. When you hear Ivy League, what comes to mind? Is it the hallowed halls of education and tradition? Professors in tweed coats pontificating about Walt Whitman? Elitism? Finals clubs? What you probably don't think of is murder. On this podcast, we focus on cases affiliated with the Ivy League, exploring the darker side of higher education. What happens when genius becomes evil? We deep dive into the stories behind the picture-perfect Ivy Leaguers who appear to have everything and throw it all away. And for what? Love? Money? Obsession? My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate. And I've been a private investigator since 1999. Join me and longtime crime diva Laura McDonald for Ivy Lee Murders.
And now, on to the show. According to an old Comanche legend, they are the direct descendants of the subjects of Montezuma II and migrated north when Cortes destroyed the old Mexican empire. For after all, they didn't want to bow to any foreign power. After a treacherous journey that lasted for several weeks, they came to a large river. They climbed the hills to gaze upon a flat land covered with countless herds of buffalo, deer, and antelope. Not being able to contain their excitement, they involuntarily cried out, Tejas, 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 and decided to make this new land their new home. The word Tejas in Comanche signifies the happy hunting grounds, the home of the departed spirits. It was later that a little country called Spain came along and changed the name of this land to Texas. One can only wonder if the German immigrants arriving in 1845 felt the same way as they gazed upon the new land that they were about to call home. Maybe from a distance they did, but once they set foot on the Texas coast in what is now Indianola, one could probably assume that their hearts sank with their boots right into the hot, stagnant Texas mud. Instead of a beautiful field abundant with resource, they gazed upon an empty swamp. No trees, no clean water, no shelter, absolutely nothing. Their sense of hopelessness must have been increased tenfold at the news that one, they were completely broke, and two, that they had to stay in this miserable place until further notice, for they could not travel to the lands that they had been promised when they left Germany. Around 1842, after years of living in poverty in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, a number of German princes came together to find a solution to reduce the overpopulation of Germany. Their solution was to form a company or a society of sorts in order to spur a mass migration to a land that they had heard so much about, a newly formed republic known as Texas. You see, many flags have flown over this great state that I call home. But in 1842, the Texas flag was the only one flying over Texas, as she had just gained her independence from Mexico only six years prior. The German princes came together and formed the Society for the Protection of German Immigrants in Texas, or the Adelsverein, and appointed Prince Karl of Salms-Braunfels as the commissioner. Shortly after, he left Germany for Texas in search of the new lands that his impoverished countrymen and women would soon call home. He arrived in Texas and after some negotiating with the Texas government and local families who had been settled in the area for generations, Prince Salms was finally able to purchase a land grant between San Angelo and San Saba, Texas for the new German settlers and a coastal site which is now Indianola. This was to serve as a seaport and the trailhead for the journey back to the Miller Fisher land grant. Back in Germany, the Adelsverein had already organized hundreds of new settlers to depart for the New World, and in July of 1844, the first wave of them began arriving at the port of Galveston. After a five-month stay, they were transported by schooner up the coast to Indianola where they spent Christmas before moving only 40 miles inland to Victoria, Texas, only to be bogged down until March while waiting for Prince Salms to settle the land agreement for the Fisher-Miller land grant. While attending to the business of the colony, Salms was urged by an old Swiss immigrant named Johann Rahm to purchase land at the halfway point between the coast and the land grant to serve as a resting point for the colonists. 
This is due to the fact that there was not enough time left in the year for them to build their houses or plant their crops by the time that they were scheduled to arrive. So on March 15, 1845, Prince Carl of Salms Braunfels purchased the Komal Tract from the heirs to the Veramendi League. He sent word to those in charge of the immigrant families while he was away to proceed and advance forth to the newly purchased site along the Kamal Springs. And on Good Friday, March 21, 1845, the first wagons carrying the German settlers crossed the Guadalupe River at the Camino Real Trail and established what is now the town that I call home, New Braunfels, Texas. But what should have been the fairy tale ending to an all but common story was actually quite far from being over. It would take another two years at the cost of nearly 5,000 lives before a quiet little town finally had some peace. In 1845, Prince Karl returned to Germany to solicit the Texas colony, leaving Baron von Musbach in charge. Musbach would later go on to found the Texas towns of Fredericksburg and Castell, but in the meantime, he was in charge of receiving the first major installation of German immigrants from the immigration program. 6,000 of them to be exact. As if that wasn't enough for Musbach, upon arriving in Indianola, he learned that Prince Karl, along with the other noblemen, had failed to make proper preparations for the newly arriving colonists. Not only did they fail to make proper preparations, they failed to make any at all. In fact, the only preparations of any kind that were ever made were those for the ships and the shipboard only. When the weary travelers made landfall in Indianola, I can only imagine the desperation that they felt at the core of their souls as they glanced upon an empty, barren wasteland. There were no buildings set up for their arrival, no food, no shelter, no tents or supplies. There was absolutely nothing. To make matters worse, they were stranded on the Texas beach surrounded by marshlands on one side and the ocean on the other with no source of fresh drinking water in between. To add insult to injury, the rain started falling from the heavens and didn't stop for several weeks. This made the marshlands and the surrounding areas impassable with knee-deep water for miles and miles around. With no shelter available, these heartbroken settlers had to dig holes in the earth to live in yet it provided little relief as none of these makeshift shelters had roofs on them. The biggest gift out of all of this was the fresh water that they had to drink from the rains. None of the Germans brought guns big enough capable of killing wild game, so their primary source of food consisted of turtles that could be found about the marsh. The final nail in the coffin for the Germans at Indianola came in the form of the Teamsters who were contracted to take the Germans inland. Most of them were Americans, and seeing as how the U.S.-Mexican War had just started, many broke their contracts in favor of working for the U.S. military. The new settlers were completely stranded. For several weeks, the rain kept pouring, and as the heat started to rise with the dawning of the Texas spring, the immigrants started to suffer from malaria, followed by dysentery. The people who weren't sick from fever yet died from starvation and heat stroke since the Germans were not yet accustomed to the Texas sun and its dangers. Their population was dwindling at an alarming rate. Hundreds of corpses lay undisturbed where they had died, only to rot in the Texas sun. Attempts were made to bury them in shallow graves, but all attempts were made in vain for the wolves would almost always dig up the deceased and scatter their remains across the prairies. 
The stories about Texas that had been passed around Germany for years painted a picture of paradise. This was definitely far from it. Finally, in March of 1845, the rain stopped. They were finally able to start their journey inland, but this was actually just the beginning of their problems. First off, Musbach had to break the news to them that due to the mismanagement of the entire project, the Society for the Protection of German Immigrants in Texas had actually squandered all of the deposits that each family had paid to the company before leaving Germany. You see, each family had to make a pretty hefty deposit to make their trip to Indianola. They were told that once they arrived in Texas that their deposits would be given back. These were the funds that were supposed to be used to get their new lives started, but no such thing was happening now. They were completely broke and broken. With no other choice but to walk the 150 miles inland, those that could grabbed what little they had and left Indianola. They left the dead where they lay along with the living that were too weak to move. Many of them said their final tearful goodbyes to their loved ones as they left them there to slowly die alone on that Texas beach in March of 1845. The trip to New Braunfels took them four weeks. Along the way, countless others died. Not being able to stop and bury everyone due to the rate that they were dying, the dead lay rotting on the side of the trail. For the years to follow, the road from Indianola to New Braunfels was littered with the bones of the dead. Several first-hand accounts talk of these atrocities. One settler recalls coming up on a large wagon that was stuck in the mud. The bones of the ox were still in the mud under the yoke and the skeletons of the driver and his entire family were scattered outside of the wagon across the prairies. Large groups of settlers stayed in towns as they passed through, either too sick to go on or just too sick of the journey. Either way, they brought their fevers with them, as well as the alarming death toll. Gravediggers in the city of Victoria were wheeling bodies out to the cemetery by the cartful, and on one account, the local gravedigger even recalled a day where he had actually pulled over 70 bodies from one house in just one day. The death rate was so alarming that they actually ran out of coffins to bury the dead in. They ended up resorting to wrapping these poor souls in whatever they had died on, which is usually bed sheets, tying them on both ends and placing them in a shallow grave with several other dead. These graves were in fact so shallow that arms, legs, and even noses were said to protrude from the ground, only to once again be dug up and eaten by the wolves. On the evening of May 4, 1845, the first sizable wave of German immigrants that had landed on the beach in Indianola just two months prior had made it within three miles of New Braunfels when yet another storm halted them in their tracks. They had made landfall at the port with numbers of 6,000 strong, and just eight weeks later and three miles from their destination, their numbers had dwindled down to no more than 1,500. Over a 150-mile stretch of land, roughly 4,500 German immigrants lost their lives in search of a new one over the course of only two months. No more than 1,500 ever reached New Braunfels, and of the 4,500 that died, nearly 50% of them had died miserable deaths from starvation and disease. If you put that into perspective, those numbers are outrageous. And what's even worse, is that out of the 4,500 people that died, 
The majority of them were left on the roadside to decay in the sun. It was the night before they were to top the hills leading into New Braunfels. The settlers made camp alongside the Guadalupe River and with light spirits enjoyed the beauty of a late spring thunderstorm in Texas while indulging in a light dinner of bacon and coffee. They engaged in conversation and although they had just participated in the death march to Comal County, their attitudes were joyous as this was supposed to be the last night for them on the trail. Everything seemed to finally be going right. That was, until they met their neighbors. According to story, the only thing that brought their spirits down that night was the sight of a Native American blood orgy taking place just down the hill in the river bottoms of the Guadalupe. The Tonkawa tribe were celebrating a victory in battle over the neighboring Waco tribe, and this consisted of cooking, roasting, and eating the body of one of the slain Waco warriors. In their culture, it was custom to practice cannibalism with the belief that it would make their offspring just as strong and as brave as their slain enemies. Herman Seeley, one of New Braunfels' founding fathers, wrote in his book, The Cypress, his accounts of that night. Quote, It was this same thunderstorm from the 4th to the 5th of May 1845 which put a sudden end to the blood orgy of the Indians in the Guadalupe Bottoms, during which they had cooked, roasted, and eaten one of their enemies, a slain Waco, as a victory feast. Tonka with squaws returning from that grisly feast told us, while tapping their bellies with satisfaction, their mouths twisted into grins, how delicious they found the meat, and that they hoped that eating it would enable them to give birth to warriors just as brave as the slain man. At the same time, they offered us blackberries in a wooden dish. We, however, declined them because they had been picked by the hands of cannibals. We had no time to reflect on the disturbing thought that we might be settling among such people because crossing the muddy creek and its slippery banks was extremely hazardous for our ox carts and required our full attention and effort. This called for real grit. One could only wonder how these immigrants felt at that moment. To have come all this way and to have suffered as much as they had, only to find out that their new neighbors were cannibals. To have survived starvation, dysentery, cholera, malaria, and heat stroke. For Texas to be like, hey guys, here's some cannibals in the mix. Well, according to Herman Seeley, they had more pressing issues, such as getting their heavy wagons through the mud. I have to say that I truly admire the resilience of the German settlers in this story. Well, this was one of the first encounters with the Tonkawa, but it for sure wouldn't be the last. In fact, the German settlers actually developed a close friendship with the tribe and as a result, never really even had any real problems with them. As a matter of fact, the German settlers were actually some of the more respected settlers of the region among the native population. Not to say that they didn't have any problems, but they were one of the few people who were actually successful in maintaining a peace treaty with the Comanche, one of Texas's most feared and aggressive tribes. Through this treaty with the Comanche, German settlers were often left alone by the majority of the native tribes within the central Texas region. Odd as it may seem, the Germans and the Tonkawa developed somewhat of a close bond. On occasion, the Tonkawa men would get drunk and come around the German encampment and howl like wolves, only to ask the settlers for more liquor. By all accounts that I've read, 
they seemed more like the 1840s version of the movie Animal House than they did anything else, minus the cannibalism. As horrible as it may sound, the Tonkawa didn't really fit the description of the savage Indian that you would hear so much about back in the day. At one point, the German colonists even tried to understand their ways by asking to partake in the cannibalism at one of their victory celebrations, only to be politely turned down by the chief. Not out of spite, but more out of the, this ain't for you buddy type of thing. This was recorded in a story by one of New Braunfels' founding fathers. Later, he became known as the father of Texas botany as well, Ferdinand Lindheimer. Lindheimer and colonist Lieutenant Von Claren rode up to a well-known Tonkawa encampment just north of town. Riding down the banks to the river, they greeted one of their Tonkawa friends in the only language that both parties understood, and that was Spanish. Von Claren called out to his old friend they referred to as Borton. Como se va, chief? Borton responded, Como se va, capitano mucho amigo? From there, the two made their way down to the camp where another victory feast was taking place. A dead Waco warrior was the main course. Now, it's unclear here whether Lindheimer or Von Claren made the suggestion but one of the men had asked the Tonkawa chief if they could try some of the roasted flesh of the warrior that was being passed around the camp. Lindheimer goes on to say in his story that they took great pains to get the idea out of my head that they had just killed a man. They went on to tell the two men that the flesh was that of a Waco warrior who had been killed by Americans some time ago. Borton tried to dissuade the two men by telling them that the flesh was smoked and that it stank. However, Upon closer examination of the body, it was determined by Lindheimer and by Von Claren that the flesh of the Waco warrior was in fact fresh and not smoked. It appeared their friend the chief was just trying to keep them from doing something that he knew that they would regret. Which brings me to the closest bond the Germans had with the Tonkawa, and that was food. It was well documented throughout the town that the Tonkawa preferred rotten meat over fresh. On many occasions, the people of New Braunfels would try and furnish the Tonkawa with fresh food and meat so they wouldn't have to eat rotten food. The people of the town had a hard time accepting that this was actually a preference. So to show their friendly feelings toward the tribe, the settlers decided to get together and host a big dinner for them. The settlers didn't have much food, but they made do with what they had and prepared a huge feast. The Tonkawa showed up and enjoyed their meal with the townsfolk, devouring all that was put in front of them. No doubt, everyone was having a good time. Things, however, took a turn for the weird when the tribe left the tables only to wander down to the riverbank to devour the carcass of a semi-decomposed horse. Throughout the years, the Germans never gave up on trying to take care of the Tonkawa. According to an entry in the archives of the New Braunfels City Council dated on October 2, 1865, a total of $10 was appropriated from funds in the city treasury to buy cornmeal and meat for the Tonkawa. Another entry dated July 2, 1866 shows where the city council ordered the treasurer to reimburse the mayor of New Braunfels $1 for 25 pounds of meat and coffee, $1 for flour, and 50 cents for sugar that the mayor had purchased for the Tonkawa who occasionally made their way through the town. Although the Tonkawa tribe were not residents of the city of New Braunfels, 
It seemed as if the residents of the town treated them as such and even looked over them and cared for them. Despite their differences, the German settlers in the Tonkawa tribe maintained a lasting friendship until the tribe was eventually forced into Oklahoma in the late 1800s. Herman Seal, along with the surviving settlers, finally crossed the Guadalupe River into New Braunfels on or around May 6th of 1845. Unfortunately, this was not the end of the death and despair that clouded the German colonists during the 1840s. There are countless other first-hand accounts of the sick dying on the riverbanks of the Kamal and Guadalupe rivers before they could even cross into the town. For years to come, hundreds of citizens died from disease and heat stroke. The site at the New Braunfels Cemetery was much like that of Victoria. People dying at such an alarming rate that there was no time to make coffins or properly bury the dead. Many were buried in a mass grave in the New Braunfels Cemetery, as well as the many who were buried where they died on the riverbanks. The history of death in New Braunfels is still a constant reminder to us here every day. Not only from the ghosts of the past that are said to haunt our historic buildings, but also from the countless graves and grave sites that reside in the middle of our own neighborhoods. It's not uncommon at all to drive through a very modern neighborhood here in town only to find a couple of headstones or a small family plot in somebody's front yard. Within a couple blocks from my own house, there are two family cemeteries. One sits on the side of a new subdivision that's only about a year old. The other sits right between two businesses and is nestled right in between the two driveways. That one is said to have 19 people buried there actually. The News family, who is said to have been one of the first families to have settled in the neighborhood in which I actually currently reside. In fact, the News family store, which was built around 1857, is rumored to be the old white house right across the street from me. But today I just know it as the house on the corner close to the one with all the chickens. But I digress. You never know what legends your own backyard has in it. The idea of this entire show was spurred by my curiosity of an old granite mile marker that sits at the intersection behind my house. This granite monument is across the street from the new store and was more than likely placed there in the early 1900s. Next to it is an old oak pole shoved into the ground. It doesn't look like much and most people don't even pay any attention to it, but you see, the road that runs directly behind my house is a little road called the Camino Real. Thousands of souls have traveled the path behind my house from back to the days of the first native settlers. This is the exact same road that the German settlers of 1844 and 1845 used to cross the Guadalupe River all those years ago. Looking at it today, you wouldn't even know it. There are no flashy signs, no tourist stops on this portion of it. Nor are there any memorials to those that have lost their lives on that trail. Nope. Around here, it's just known as Post Road. But again, I digress. New Braunfels must have seemed like a modern-day Garden of Eden to the settlers ending their trip here. Despite all of the death and the misery that surrounded the town for the first few years of its existence, the crystal clear waters of the Kamal River and the beautiful fertile farmlands that this area has to offer must have made the settlers feel a sense of ease when they first laid their eyes on this valley. The death toll finally started to fall in 1847 
and in 1850, New Braunfels was finally thriving. In 1850, it had actually become the fourth largest city in Texas. Now I wish I could say that the curse for the Germans ended there, and maybe for the people of New Braunfels, it did. But the powers that be of this universe didn't see it fit that the port town of Indianola stay alive. The population of Indianola never recovered, and year after year, fevers and death continued to sweep through the coastal town. You see, upon arriving in Indianola, many of the Germans had heard of the atrocities of the trail to New Braunfels and decided it better for them to stay there. Well, it turned out not to be a wise choice. Every year, a new plague hit the town in the summer, killing hundreds each year. In 1875, a massive hurricane destroyed the tiny settlement. The town rebuilt, but was finally deserted for good when another massive hurricane in 1886 completely leveled the town again. The people of Indianola had finally decided that they had had enough. The town soon after would be completely deserted. This leads me to my next topic. Is the trail from Indianola to New Braunfels itself actually cursed? One must wonder. There are few places in the world that I've ever even heard of that played host to an event such as the Death March to Kamal County. Indianola, even before the Germans, did not have a good reputation. Before the Germans, present-day Indianola was the starting point for LaSalle's ill-fated Texas expedition in which the famous explorer actually lost his life. In cold-blooded murder, he was assassinated by his own men right here in Texas. And it was on these same shores where a man named Jacques Grolet first set foot in the Americas, along with LaSalle and the rest of his crew. This man was actually implicated in the plot to assassinate LaSalle, and was one of the only two survivors of LaSalle's expedition to stay behind in the Americas. Jacques Grolet, later named Santiago Garule, went on to become one of my great-grandfathers, and he started his journey on the same beaches as the Germans did in 1844. But again, we'll talk more about Jacques in another story. I'm going to get back to Indianola. LaSalle's expedition in Texas was doomed from the moment he set foot in Indianola. Two of his ships wrecked right there in Matagorda Bay, taking nearly all of his supplies to the bottom of the Gulf. And when he tried to leave Texas, he didn't even make it out alive. Much of the same can be said for many of the Germans. There is so much death and so many lost souls that never found peace in that town and along those trails, it would be hard not to fathom a curse of some sorts. My wife and I recently visited the small town on a day trip to record some footage for this episode. What started off as a quick, fun trip to the Texas coast quickly turned into an incredibly miserable experience. The trip started off great. We got a little bit of a late start, but that was no big deal for us. We were both night owls at one point in time. My wife worked overnight at a truck stop and I spent 13 years over the road as a truck driver. Needless to say, a two-hour trip at night didn't bother either one of us all that much. Now, here's where it's really important to follow along. As we were nearing the town of Victoria, Texas, I was being silly and I asked my wife a silly question. As I was drinking our coffee in the dark while driving, I was using my tongue to find the hole in the lid so I knew when it was safe to take a sip without pouring coffee directly onto my face. 
bear with me. This part sounds like a dirty joke and it wasn't intended that way, however it might have come out that way. I asked my wife, am I the only one who licks the coffee lid in the dark to find out where the hole in the lid is at? Laughing, my wife replied, no. I jokingly tell her, it's almost like my tongue is my 11th finger, but by then it was too late and I couldn't take it back. Well, I didn't mean for it to come out that way, I said while laughing. My wife and I had an extremely good laugh over that and talked about it over the next several days to come. We made it to Indianola with no problems, and although a little late, we grabbed a bite to eat, and almost immediately within arriving in town, we got a phone call from the house with some bad news. We gathered our composure and decided to get some rest since we knew that we had a long day ahead of us. The next day started off rough. I woke up with a horrible abscess tooth, and I could feel the infection just throbbing deep within my jaw. We made it out to what used to be Indianola and got the footage and the pictures that we went down there for. While we were there, we took a minute to walk through the old Indianola Cemetery where many of the original settlers from the 1840s are buried in unmarked graves, as well as the victims of the 1875 and the 1886 hurricanes. An ominous marker on a headstone simply read, Blessed are those who die young. That's it. No name, no date, just that. I thought it was a little weird, but oh well. We decided to head back about mid-afternoon. By now, my tooth and my jaw were hurting so bad I was just ready to go home and get this trip over with for sure. Now, for those of you that don't know me, I live for this kind of stuff. I love road trips and I love exploring old cemeteries and ghost towns. So for me to say that I was ready to go home says a lot about how bad I was feeling. By the time we made it back to New Braunfels, my wife and I decided to cover the final steps of the settlers and cross the Faust Street Bridge on foot. This is the exact location where the settlers first crossed the Guadalupe River in 1845 to finally end their journeys. Well, we decided it would put a nice finishing touch to the story, so we did. Now by this time my wife was starting to feel ill herself. We went halfway across the bridge and made a half-hearted attempt to get some pictures before calling it quits and heading to the house. Once we got home, I took my temperature and to no surprise I was running a fever due to the infection in my tooth. What was strange though is that my wife was also running a fever. I sank into my favorite chair in my office and didn't move until it was time to go to bed that night. I felt like I was going to pass out and was extremely uncoordinated. My wife kept talking of how physically and emotionally drained she was as well, and I felt it too. It felt as if our life forces had just been sucked dry from our bodies. We decided to call it an early night and go to bed. Upon awakening in the morning, my wife seemed to be doing a little better than I was, but we both felt like what could only be best described as emotionally hungover. I have to note here that neither one of us drink alcohol. We've both been in Texas our entire life, so we're used to the heat, and dehydration was definitely not our issue that day, as we had plenty of the right resources on hand. No, it was something that came out of the blue, something that came out of nowhere, and all I know is that from the moment we got to Indianola, things started getting a little rough. The next day, I got back behind my computer to finish up the research for this show so that I could finally start writing it, when something startling caught my eye. 
Remember the joke about the 11th finger? Remember where we were when I said it? Well, just in case you don't, we were almost to Victoria, Texas. Well, lo and behold, on the pages of a book right before my eyes in bold black print was the name Eleven Finger Rogers. Eleven Finger Rogers literally had 11 fingers. He had an extra thumb for those of you who were curious. But he also just happened to be the mayor of Victoria, Texas during the time of the German migration through there. Story has it that so many burials were taking place at the expense of the city one year that Eleven Finger Rogers decided to put a stop to it by informing the gravedigger that the city would no longer pay. Well, not too pleased with Rogers' decision, the local gravedigger resulted in leaving bodies stacked up against the door of Rogers' store until Rogers finally gave in to his demands. What were they, you might ask? $2.50 a corpse and a quart of good whiskey, which was then valued at 10 cents a quart. My how times have changed. I'd also like to throw in a side note here. As I was writing this episode, Hurricane Hannah was barreling down on the Texas coast. One of the towns to take the brunt of the impact was Indianola, exactly one week after we had left. So, is the trail that claimed thousands of lives in such a short period of time actually cursed, or was it merely just the sign of the times? I'll leave that up to you, the listener, to decide. I can only speak from my own experience with this trail, and honestly, if I had to do it all over again, I don't know if I would. Not to Indianola, anyway. The lifelessness that I experienced at my core when I got home was a feeling that I will never forget. It stained upon my mind like it just happened yesterday. And yet, maybe that's all it was, was a stain. A stain on the earth, a stain on the soil. Maybe it wasn't so much of a curse as it was sharing the memories of the earth. If people have any sort of connection to the earth itself, as many people feel that they do, then is it possible that through that connection, Mother Earth was just sharing her memories of the past with us? Was she sharing the painful memories of her lost children from the years past who now make up her soil? Or is this just all in my head? I know one thing is for sure. We'll never know the answer to that question until we join our ancestors and we too are consumed by the soil of the planet.